1972, Joey Gallo killed in Little Italy during dinner at Umberto's Clam House. They get there by violence, and often as not, they leave by violence. Between three and five million dollars in cash and valuables was taken from the Lufthansa cargo terminal out at Kennedy Airport. I can give you guys a half a million dollars a year without a problem. New York City is a war zone for mobsters and their targets. Hello everyone and welcome into episode 55 of The Black Hand, an organized crime history podcast. I'm your host, Bliss Grieve, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about the infamous Colombian drug lord, Griselda Blanco. She came up hard on the streets of Medellin, running away from home, and allegedly committing her first murder at just 11 years old eventually moving to Queens, New York with her second husband, where she started building her drug empire, currying favor in what would eventually become the Medellin cartel. But following an attempted DEA takedown and short stay out of the country, she relocated to Miami, launching a massive drug war in the streets, effectively turning South Florida into a war zone while Blanco trafficked tens of thousands of kilos of cocaine, breaking in close to a billion dollars every year. Before we get started, if you want to support the show, please rate it and go follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at the Black Hand Pod, and please feel free to reach out. Also, consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at the Black Hand Pod as well. The link's in the description. But without further ado, Let's get right into today's episode. Griselda Blanco Restrepo was born on February 14, 1943, in Cartagena, Colombia, to Fernando and Anna Blanco. But by the time Griselda was just three years old, her and her mother moved to Medellin, which would be dubbed the most dangerous city in the world by Time magazine at the height of the 80s cocaine trade. However, Things didn't get any better there. Griselda's mother, Anna Blanco, was a prostitute, and her daughter was often beaten and endured years of sexual assault at the hands of her mother's clients. The cycle of violence and abuse led Blanco to roam the streets, where she herself engaged in prostitution at a young age, eventually fleeing home and never returning. The young Blanco became friendly with low-level criminals and resorted to petty offenses to stay alive. And at the age of 11, Blanco helped kidnap a 10-year-old boy, and when the boy's parents refused to pay the ransom, she shot and killed him. Then, at the age of 13, she met the man who'd become her first husband, a petty forger named Carlos Trujillo. They'd eventually have three sons together, but the marriage fell apart by the late 1960s, and it's believed that Blanco had Trujillo murdered in the 1970s, marking the first of three of her husbands that would meet a brutal end at her hand. Not long after, Blanco met and soon married yet another hustler named Alberto Bravo, but instead of forging illegal documents, Bravo moved cocaine, and by the early 70s, he'd saved around $25,000. So Griselda and Bravo, like so many before them, 
decided to pursue the American dream, settling in Queens, New York, which at the time was becoming the perfect environment for Blanca's entrance into the drug game as the rise of cocaine was just getting started. By the 1970s, drugs associated with the counterculture movement of the 1960s, like LSD, were losing their appeal as official LSD research was being halted and some users of the drug were moving towards spiritual alternatives. And throughout the 70s, cocaine sales increased sevenfold and began to outsell heroin for the first time, a change driven heavily by the Colombians, who were also on the rise. Because of cocaine's prestigious reputation as a cultural symbol of high status, especially as it related to wealth and glamour among Americans during the late 1970s, mainly due to its high cost, Colombian criminals who were already accomplished smugglers of various goods and commercialized black market trade networks began to see cocaine as an irresistibly lucrative item for smuggling. A product like cocaine that packs tighter than other drugs or contraband indicated a greater, more eased potential for logistical transportability. With less of a chance for interdiction or complications during the product's long journey across borders and to various regional markets around the globe. This further maximized the profit potential since its volume and weight relative to its final monetary value would now be exponentially greater than it would have been from trafficking the same or similar weight and volume of a less valuable product like marijuana. Also, Unlike marijuana, which can already be produced within close proximity to the desirable North American drug markets, cocaine production was basically exclusive to South America at the time, and it was therefore easier for South American criminal groups to control and monopolize on it. Accordingly, at this time, during the 1970s, many of the most well-established entrepreneurial Incapable contraband smugglers or trafficking groups were composed of Colombian nationals. But even among them, the soon to be massively wealthy drug lord Pablo Escobar stood out from the rest. He soon became characterized by his strategy of providing protection and mutually beneficial collaboration to other smugglers who partnered with him and helped further distribute the organization's cocaine into markets of high demand like New York City and eventually Miami, thus forming a large and more considerable criminal web of suppliers and combined trade networks that now further empowered Escobar's operations. Through this newly formed collaborative criminal effort and structural design made up of different traffickers now working together, an organization that would eventually become known as the Medellin Cartel emerged. And this is what would bring Griselda into the fold, because part of this newly formed trafficking organization was a group of four brothers named Juan David, Fabio, Jorge, and Louis Ochoa. But it was through Juan David Ochoa that Griselda started building her career in the streets, sourcing her cocaine through his top aide, Rafael Cardona. And before long, Blanco and her second husband, Alberto Bravo, started importing massive amounts of cocaine into Queens and New York City as a whole, 
under the cover of Bravo's clothing import company. The business even manufactured the special range of drug mule lingerie that Blanco came up with. Women's undergarments fitted with dozens of pockets that allowed a smuggler to carry as much as 7 pounds of cocaine in a single corset. And by the mid-70s, her pilots were flying in massive quantities of cocaine directly from Colombia, bringing her millions of dollars a month. She even grew big enough to undercut the five families, huge drug traffickers in their own right, due to her connections to Colombia, taking over a huge market share of the local drug racket with 1,500 dealers working the streets for her. So it didn't take long for a relatively newly formed drug enforcement agency to catch wind of her thriving organization, soon launching a wide-ranging investigation named Operation Banshee. Then, in 1975, after authorities intercepted a reported 150 kilos or 330 pounds of cocaine, Blanco and more than 30 associates were indicted on federal drug conspiracy charges. But Griselda had already fled back to Colombia by this point, and once there, she killed her second husband, Alberto Bravo, suspecting that he was cheating on her and stealing millions of dollars from their business. Now the sole leader of her massive smuggling operation, Blanco continued running the business from Colombia, and at one point, even allegedly smuggled cocaine into the U.S. on a ship named the Gloria, a vessel that the Colombian government had sent to take part in America's bicentennial celebration in New York Harbor. But by 1978, she married her third husband, a known bank robber named Dario Sepulveda. And shortly after that, Blanco returned to the U.S., establishing a new operation in Miami. A fitting move, as during the 1970s and 80s, South American drug trafficking groups, like the Medellin Cartel, started to make Miami their base of operations, both to sell drugs and kill rival organizations. Pablo Escobar at the time was responsible for about 80% of the cocaine smuggled into the United States, mostly through his organized trafficking shipments, routes, and distribution networks into South Florida. While using the island of Norman's Cay, 200 miles southeast of the Florida coast, as a transshipment point. But the street-level scene of Miami at the time was a powder keg waiting for a spark filled with factions of Colombians, Cubans, and other traffickers that were never too far from breaking out into all-out war. There were three main factions running the drug trade in Miami at the time, at least at a wholesale level, and they were mostly divided along ethnic lines. The first were the white guys, who mostly tended to work in the marijuana trade, leaving the cocaine for the Cubans and Colombians. The former of the two being headlined by a heavyweight named Jose Madrano Alvaro Cruz. While officials estimate that there was anywhere from 50 to 150 top Colombian traffickers in South Florida at the time, with another 200 or so mid-level managers. And they were the most secretive of all, preferring to keep business in the family. 
and in step with this huge concentration of traffickers, Miami was quickly becoming the drug capital of the U.S., if not the world, as an estimated 70% of all marijuana and cocaine imported into the U.S. passed through South Florida, making drug smuggling one of the region's biggest industries worth anywhere from $7 billion to $12 billion a year. As opposed to the $12 billion from real estate and the $9 billion brought in by tourism, the area's two biggest legitimate businesses at the time. Miami's Federal Reserve Branch even had a currency surplus of $5 billion, mostly in drug-generated $50 and $100 bills, which equated to more than the nation's 12 Federal Reserve Banks combined. And while the Miami coke scene had been unstable, but restrained for a few years now, Griselda Blanco was about to hit the scene and spark a conflict that had been brewing for some time, enriching herself in the process. And her takeover of a huge portion of the Miami drug trade didn't take long at all, and by the late 1970s alone, Griselda had been linked to at least a dozen murders in the area. But there was one instance of violence in particular that she was responsible for that would not only stake her claim in the local drug trade, but would also set off the Miami Drug War. It happened on July 11, 1979, when two men, a Colombian cocaine dealer named Herman Jimenez Paneso and an associate in a white Mercedes-Benz, stopped at the liquor store while two other men got out of a white van and went into the store as the van driver waited. Though, this wasn't a normal van. It was Blanco's war wagon, a van with sides covered by quarter-inch steel with one-way plastic gun ports cut into them. And when authorities eventually got inside, they found about 20 shotguns, revolvers, and machine guns. Once inside... The two men opened fire with automatic weapons, killing the two men from the Mercedes while endangering shoppers and passers-by. This event became known as the Dadeland Mall Shootout, and police later theorized that the men from the van were hired guns working for Griselda Blanco, while the victims were members of a rival drug smuggling operation. And it, along with other violent events, eventually even led George H.W. Bush, who was vice president at the time, to form a federal drug task force in South Florida to fight crime related to the drug trade. But of course, this wasn't an isolated incident, and largely due to Blanco, the first seven months of 1979 were soon deemed the bloodiest in South Florida's history. The first five months of 1980 were no better, with Miami seeing 75 murders, and in the last seven months, there were another 169. And as a result, by 1981, Miami was not only the murder capital of America, but the entire world. Every year, starting in 1979, coincidentally the year Griselda hit the scene, murders in Miami set a new record. Rising from 349 in 1979 to 569 in 1980 to a whopping 621 in 1981. 
50% were drug-related, 25% died from machine gun fire, and 15% were public executions, a good percentage of which were likely also Griselda Blanco's patented motorcycle drive-bys. Things eventually even got so bad that the Dade County Medical Examiner's Office rented a refrigerated trailer from Burger King to handle the overflow of corpses. At a time when Colombian and Cuban dealers were regularly killed with submachine guns, most of the city's homicides were due to the Miami drug war of the time. And the majority of the unofficial Miami drug war took place between two rival cartels, the Medellin cartel, who Griselda Blanco represented by proxy, and that of a former Blanco enforcer named Louis Meja, who had created a drug network running all the way from Miami to New York and was constantly at war with Blanco. And while Griselda ordered literally countless murders and even carried out some herself, it was her most trusted hitman, Jorge Rivi Ayala, that not only led her hired guns, known as the Pistoleros, but also carried out a huge number of the hits she ordered, effectively ensuring that she would maintain her control of the drug trade in Miami. Born on September 6, 1957, in Cali, Colombia, Ayala came up in Chicago and started off as a mechanic for his father at General Motors. But he eventually drifted into a life of crime by stealing cars and taking them to chop shops across the city. On the side, Ayala would also make money from smuggling Mexican immigrants into the U.S. through the border. He was first brought to Miami in 1979 by a job that required him to transport a truck full of used guns from Chicago to Miami. But upon arriving with the shipment, he ended up deciding to stay in Florida, making ends meet by shaking people down as a small-time enforcer. And it was likely during this time that he met Blanco and started working his way up to being her top enforcer. However, one of the first hits he carried out for Blanco was somewhat of an accident. Because one night, he accidentally tipped off two brothers who were about to be taken out that the hammer was coming down. Now, in order to save himself from execution, it was up to him to finish the job. He worked out a plan to kidnap one of the brothers and use him to lure the second one, but he was only able to grab one of the brothers named Hernan Granados at a Ramada Inn parking lot. Griselda didn't mind though and ordered Revy to kill the man, dismember him, and stuff his body in a cardboard box. Now a proven soldier, Ayala was tasked with his first big-time piece of work, as it was Jorge and his brother Alonzo that carried out the 1979 Dadeland Park shootout. And with a major hit now under his belt, Blanco felt confident enough to send Rivi to take out her biggest rival, Louis Meja. A former enforcer for Griselda, who reportedly decided to steal from her early on and break off on his own, starting a drug ring in New York. But when Ayala hit the streets of New York, he allegedly killed 11 of Meja's men, from stashers to enforcers, in less than 24 hours, though none of them were Louis Meja himself, 
so he wasn't done just yet. And when he returned from New York City, he did what he thought was the next best thing, taking out Meha's father, Octavio, which he did at the Pan American Mall in Miami, where Octavio was ambushed and gunned down by multiple men, including Ayala. And though this hit rubbed many in the Colombian drug community the wrong way, since Octavio Meja wasn't in the game, Griselda just didn't care, and Revy was always going to follow orders. And in the final episode of the Blanco Meja saga, Ayala would take his final shot at Louis, deciding to simply blow up his Miami home. And while he definitely succeeded in that regard, allegedly using 200 sticks of dynamite, the house was unoccupied at the time of the explosion, so all Reevy did in reality was cause a ton of structural damage and bring even more attention to the Miami drug war. And though Ayala hadn't actually killed Meja, he was essentially a non-factor now to Blanco, who continued her reign at the top of the Miami drug trade. And at the height of her power in the early 80s, Griselda was making $80 million a month, smuggling 3,400 pounds or a little over 1,500 kilos of cocaine in the same amount of time for the Medellin cartel, which would come out to a whopping billion dollars a year in gross revenue made from smuggling 20,000 kilos of cocaine. But even though Blanco was at the top of her game, her streak of excessive wanton violence would continue, eventually resulting in her downfall, though that would take a few more years. In the meantime, however, her and Reevee's 1982 killing spree would start on February 6th with the murder of Jesus Castro, one of Blanco's former enforcers. According to a former Miami homicide detective, she wanted Castro dead after he had been hired to protect a drug supplier, but refused to carry out an unspecified order. However, Ayala claims that Blanco wanted Castro dead for an alleged defense against one of her sons. But regardless of the reason, on February 6, 1982, Revi and another gunman named Miguelito Perez drove up to the side of Castro's vehicle while he was stopped at a red light and performed a drive-by shooting with a silenced machine gun. However, the bullets missed Jesus Castro and tragically hit his two-year-old son, Johnny, who was unknowingly present in the car with him. Then, on May 26, 1982, acting on orders from Blanco, Ayala and his crew killed a drug-dealing couple named Alfredo and Grizel Lorenzo. Their killings were the apparent result of a cocaine shipment that the couple had received from Blanco, but failed to pay her for. According to Revy, Griselda had originally ordered the murder of everyone in the house, but he made sure that the Lorenzo children weren't harmed. However, as the 80s progressed, Blanco would carry out a succession of moves that would result in her decline and eventual downfall, the first one coming in late 1983 when Blanco's third husband kidnapped their son and returned to Colombia with him. But needless to say, Blanco had husband number three assassinated 
with gunmen shooting him in his car as their son sat right next to him. And while she had gotten her son back, the murder of her third husband, Dario Sepulveda, caused a war to break out between Blanco and Sepulveda's brother, Paco. And before long, some of Blanco's former supporters decided to take Paco's side, including an important supplier. Then, in 1984, Jaime, the nephew of her slain second husband, Alberto Bravo, patrolled her favorite shopping malls, waiting for his chance to kill her. But more than all of these problems, which she might have been able to weather, it was her own greed and brutality that would cause her ultimate demise. Because for whatever reason, despite her making nearly a billion dollars every single year, Blanco decided to order the murder of a woman named Marta Saldariaga Achoa in order to not pay for a shipment of cocaine delivered by Marta. Which would have been fine if Marta was anyone but the niece of the infamous Ochoa family of the Medellin cartel, who were not only incredibly important to the cartel as a whole, but also held the success of Blanco in their hands. She initially sourced cocaine through Juan David Ochoa, who gave her her start in the drug game, but by this point, she was supplied through his brother, Jorge Luis Ochoa. And for whatever reason, Griselda planned with the murder of Marta Ochoa to say that she never received the shipment and that the young lady had disappeared with it. But after Marta's body was found on a rural South Florida road, it became open season on Blanco. Despite this, however, in a stroke of luck for her, Ochoa's father didn't pursue Griselda and instead pleaded for the killing to stop. But whether he personally went after her, that didn't stop the Medellin cartel at large, and by 1984, Griselda was forced to flee to California with a $4 million bounty on her head, where she'd hide out and tap into the West Coast drug markets. While there, she was able to lay low and avoid both Bravo's nephew and the DEA. But by November of 1984, Bravo's nephew Jaime was arrested because he was a potential threat to the DEA's arrest of Blanco. Now, with the nephew out of the way, the DEA was finally able to move in on Griselda, and in 1985, she was arrested at the age of 42, eventually being sentenced to almost 20 years in jail for narcotics trafficking. And you'll likely notice that there were no murder charges, despite the fact that Blanco was suspected of ordering up to 200 murders in Colombia and around 40 in the U.S. Then, in 1988, Jorge Rivi Ayala was also arrested, eventually being sentenced to just 25 years with the possibility of parole for three murders, though it's believed that he claimed over three dozen victims during his time on the streets. But with Blanco and her muscle both behind bars, her enemies turned their attention to her son, Osvaldo. And in 1992, Osvaldo was shot in the leg and shoulder by one of Pablo Escobar's hitmen and would later die in the hospital. However, the real blow for Griselda came in 1994 when her trusted hitman, 
Reeve became the star witness in a murder prosecution against her. Though a phone sex scandal between Ayala and secretaries from the Miami-Dade District Attorney's Office would cause the case to fall through. And despite her stroke of luck, she would end up serving nearly her whole sentence, being released and sent back to Columbia in 2004. But by this point, with all the enemies she had made over the years, she didn't stand much of a chance on the streets, let alone in Colombia. And on September 3, 2012, Blanco and her pregnant daughter-in-law bought meat at Cardiso Butcher Shop on the corner of 29th Street and Medellin. But as she exited, in an ironic and befitting fall, an assassin on a motorcycle shot Blanco twice, killing her on the spot. Mimicking the style of assassination that Griselda was often credited with introducing to Miami during her reign. But that's really all I have for you guys today. I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's show and tune back in next week for episode 56. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating and follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at the Black Hand Pod. And please feel free to reach out with feedback suggestions and comments also please consider giving a little bit to the show's venmo at the black hand pod as well but with that said i hope you all have a great rest of your day this is your host bliss grieve signing out